0: Chapter eight of Things Seen in Florence by Elizabeth Grierson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eight Environments Next in interest to the city of Florence itself is the little sister city of Fiesole, standing on its hill about two miles to the northward. The appellation city sits strangely upon it for splendid as it may have been in olden times it is a mere village to-day although it still possesses a cathedral and a bishop of its own one can reach it by tram-car from the duomo or by hired carriage but either of these methods entails a long dusty drive as the public road winds in rather a tedious manner up the hillside, and it is much more direct and also a hundred times more interesting to climb to fiesole on foot through the narrow lanes and up the steep rocky paths which have been trodden before us by bishops and monks and fierce medici warriors whose names stand out among those of the makers of florence we can if we will take the tram from the duomo to the porta san gallo then alighting take the second road to the right and follow the course of the Mugnone until we come to the walls which surround the garden of the villa palmieri it was within these walls that boccaccio's seven maidens with their swains took refuge during a visitation of plague in thirteen forty eight and spent their time telling stories and listening to the songs of the nightingales it was here also that queen victoria of pious memory spent some happy weeks in the spring of eighteen eighty eight after passing the walls of this villa we reached the convent of san domenico di Fiesole. Where Guido da Vicchio, better known as Fra Angelico, and his brother Benedetto, who afterwards became Pope of Rome, served then avitiate and became Dominican friars. The church has been despoiled, but two frescoes of Fra Angelico's still remain: a triptych, a Madonna and Saints in the choir, and a crucifixion in the sacristy. If we will, we can branch off the road here and visit the Badia de Fiesole which we see marked out by its campanile on the left both convent and church are very beautiful and the place is haunted by memories of bishop romolo the first bishop of Fiesole, who is said to have been sent here in a d sixty by the apostle peter himself also of two irish saints donato and andrew who set out in the ninth century to make a pilgrimage to italy to visit the holy places and were so charmed with the beauty of this hill that they entered the convent and spent the remainder of their lives here. From the Dominican monastery the path ascends straight up the slope, growing ever steeper and steeper. But we hardly notice the difficulty of the way as we feast our eyes on the wonderful panorama spread out beneath us, ever growing wider and more far-reaching, the higher we ascend. Or gaze at the extraordinary wealth of colouring which meets us at every turn. For the hill of Fiesole, especially in springtime is a veritable paradise of flowers indeed no one who has wandered along its byways at this season and passed through fields ablaze with tulips and anemones narcissi and irises violets and periwinkles while overhead almond and peach and apricot blossom in all the loveliness of their delicate tints stand out against the sky can doubt as to where Fra Angelico learned to choose the colours for the robes of his heavenly hosts. Higher up still we pass the Villa Medici, hidden in gardens, and shut in by ancient cypresses, and the convent of San Girolamo, reached by a flight of moss-grown stone steps, which are also guarded by cypresses. This convent is now occupied by Irish nuns, the little company of Mary, these sisters are more commonly known as the blue nuns from the blue veils which form part of their dress they are a nursing order and besides taking cases in florence and elsewhere they receive convalescent patients into the convent a little farther on we reach the piazza round which the village of fiesole centres it is somewhat dusty and windswept, and as it serves both as a car terminus and a cab-stand we are at once beset by cabmen who wish to drive us back to florence by boys who flourish postcards in our faces and by little girls who offer us sweet-smelling poses with the most enticing of smiles there are also plenty of loitering beggars who press forward with eager requests to be allowed to guide us to the roman theatre we will be wise if we shake off all those importunate folk with the exception perhaps of the little flower girls for the postcards are poor and we can explore fiesole to better advantage alone the piazza occupies what was probably the site of the etruscan forum facing us as we stand with our backs to the path up which we have climbed is the cathedral to the left is a franciscan monastery and the little church of san alessandro standing where in etruscan days stood a temple dedicated to Bacchus, or the Etruscan equivalent to Bacchus. Behind us, down a narrow lane, are some very well-preserved remains of a Roman theatre and baths, and the fragments of a temple. These ruins lie basking in the sun on the slope of the hill on the other side from Florence, and little active green lizards creep out and in among the old stones. Traces of the ancient Etruscan wall can also be seen here, showing how these old builders did their work simply placing one enormous block of stone on top of another the cathedral is interesting as being the burial place of san donatos and containing the tomb of bishop salutati which is considered the masterpiece of the sculpture mino da Fiesole but it is not in the cathedral that one feels inclined to linger but up on the crest of the hill which rises to the west of the piazza which is reached by a steep narrow lane haunted by beggars and starving uncared-for dogs at the top of this lane there is a little plateau which boasts a couple of seats and is protected by a low stone wall from this point of vantage the most wonderful view is obtained beneath us to the left lies florence with her domes and spires seen through a delicate tracery of fruit trees opposite is san Miniato that hill of gardens up which the inhabitants of the city are carried when the time comes for them to sleep their long sleep to the south and west wind the valleys of the arno and the former bounded in the distance by range after range of hills clinging to the sides of which tiny little white walled cittas are to be seen while against the far horizon rise the peaks of the Apennines, and the mountains behind which lie the valley of the Tiber and Rome. If we would catch some glimpses of real Tuscan peasant life, we have only to dip over the crest of the hill, and turn our faces in the direction of the outlying villages of Setignano and Maiano. If we do so, we will find plenty to interest us in watching the swarthy Contadini tilling their little plots of ground, or ploughing between the rows of vines or olives with their teams of patient oxen in the goat herds tending their goats and in the bright-eyed dark-haired girls who take their part so readily in all kinds of outside work no one who visits the country round about florence in early summer can fail to be struck by the large stretches of ground covered with irises which are grown in the vicinity in large numbers wrapping parts of the hillsides in a perfect glory of purple and mauve this stately flower besides being indigenous to the soil is specially cultivated by farmers and peasant proprietors not only for the sale of its blossoms but in order that its roots may be sold to form the principal ingredient of the fragrant orris-root perfumes for which the city is famous these perfumes are manufactured and sold in the ancient pharmacia of santa maria novella the peasants attend to their little crops of irises in their spare time the girls rising early in the bright summer mornings to cut the blossoms before the strength of the sun has withered them and carry them down to the city in sheaves to sell them at street corners or in the mercato nuovo afterwards when the roots come to be lifted they are peeled and dried at odd moments but on a large podere or farm THE DIGGING OF THE IRIS ROOTS IS LIKE ANY OTHER HARVEST, A TIME WHEN EVERYONE IS BUSY, AND WHEN OUTSIDE HELP IS WANTED. IT TAKES PLACE IN JULY, WHEN THE FLOWERING SEASON IS OVER. THEN THE PLANTS ARE DUG UP, AND THE LARGEST ROOTS LAID ASIDE FOR PEELING, WHILE THE SMALL TUBERS WHICH HAVE BEEN THROWN OUT ARE CUT OFF AND REPLANTED, TO GROW INTO MATURE ROOTS IN TWO YEARS' TIME. EVERY MORNING A QUANTITY OF ROOTS ARE DUG UP IN THIS WAY, and carried to the farm buildings to be weighed, they are then handed over to bands of women and girls who have been engaged for the purpose, and who settle themselves in some outhouse or in some shady spot in the open air, and peel and chatter and chatter and peel all through the livelong day. In the evening, the peeled roots are spread out on stoyer or mats and carried to some safe place, and then they are left until they have shriveled up and are hard as wood then they are taken to the city where in the different manufactories they are ground to powder which finds its way as florence oris root to shops all over the world it is august before the ingathering of the iris crop is over in september comes the vendemiare or vintage this is a time of great rejoicing and constant picnicking for the grapes are gathered on different estates on different days so that all the neighbours may have their due share in the festivities, first at one podere, then at another. Invitations to take part in the vendemiare, having been sent out by the fattore, or bailiff, the recipients flock to the vineyard in the early morning, men and women and children, for even tiny fingers can help to gather grapes. Everyone carries a basket made of pleated osiers and the older folk have provided themselves with sharp knives vines in tuscany are as a rule allowed to grow very luxuriantly being trained in loose festoons over mulberry trees which are planted for the purpose in regular rows up and down the hillsides soon everyone is busy the grown-ups cutting the luscious bunches from the vines the children picking up the unblemished grapes which have fallen on the ground eating as many as they can meanwhile when the baskets are filled they are emptied into wooden casks which have been placed at intervals in the field and these in their turn are placed on waggons which are drawn by docile oxen to the eyre, or great stone shed where the wine vats are to be found the grapes are passed through a machine which slices them down then the juicy mass is thrown into a vat and in the evening when work in the fields is finished stalwart contadini come to the knees and tread the grapes singing lustily in chorus meanwhile fermentation and other processes follow and when the wine is ready for use it is sold in casks or in the quaint long-necked straw-covered flasks which we have seen brought to the city in such large quantities when as often happens on large estates the vendemiare lasts for several days a supper is given on the last evening by the padrone or master To all who have taken part gentle and simple alike for family friends as well as humbler neighbors make a point of lending their aid after the supper is ended dancing is carried on merrily by moonlight or starlight in the open air the olive crop is of as much or even more importance than the vintage for italy makes a great boast of her olive oil which is perhaps the purest in the world The olive-trees are not left to grow in wild luxuriance like the vines, but are carefully pruned and cut back in the spring. Then they are left to themselves all summer, while the husbandman ploughs the strips of red earth that run between their ordered ranks, and sows and reaps his crop of maize or millet or melons. In the late autumn he begins to take more heed to the olives, which by then are beginning to change colour, or rather he takes anxious heed to the weather, For if a storm should arise, and the fruit be battered about or blown to the ground, a great part of his profit would be gone, as the best quality of oil cannot be obtained from bruised and damaged olives. The picking of the fruit, which begins at the end of November, and goes on all through December, entails a great amount of labour, as each olive is taken separately from its branch by men and women who stand on ladders to do so. The fruit is carried to the frantoio or oil-pressing room, where it is thrown into an enormous stone basin and crushed, kernels and all, by a wheel which is attached to a pole projecting from a pillar in the centre, and is worked by a docile ox, which plods patiently round and round outside the basin on a track of dried leaves and ferns. When the olives have been sufficiently bruised, the oily pulp is lifted out with wooden shovels, and put into a wine-press which on small farms at least is worked by the peasants themselves who form a very picturesque picture as in their scanty garments and bright-coloured sashes they throw all their weight on the beam of wood by which the screw is turned the finest quality of oil is that which trickles out first and it seems as if there were some truth in the assertion that the italians keep this to themselves for it is certainly not like that we buy in england being practically colourless and absolutely tasteless in former years a very fitting custom obtained in the neighbourhood of florence two small barrels of oil were entrusted to the care of the representatives of some special church or brotherhood it might be the franciscans of fiesole this year the brothers of san miniato next in order that they might be offered as a thanks offering for the olive harvest at the altar of the church of the santissima annunziata the brethren who chanced to have the honour to be elected conveyed the barrels to the church slung on either side of a mule which was ridden by a tiny boy dressed as an angel a similar custom prevails to-day at the village of Signa, which is situated some seven miles from florence where on easter monday the festival of the local saint is held the saint being a little shepherdess giovanna who in the thirteenth century left her sheep to follow a life of stricter devotion in a tiny cell on the hillside on her festival all the daughter churches which are dependent on the parish church of Signa, send an offering of oil to supply the lamps of the blessed giovanna's shrine and each offering is brought by a tiny boy or girl angel who heads his or her village procession seated on a donkey each procession is met at the door of the church by the parish priest of signia and the proud little angel is allowed to ride up the central aisle to the altar where it deposits its offering afterwards retiring by a side aisle thus making room for the next comer about two and a half miles from florence overlooking the Valdema, stands the picturesque carthusian monastery now rapidly approaching dissolution which is generally spoken of simply as the certosa we reach it by the road which passes through the puerte romana and leads to the little village of sangaluzzo where the entire female population seems engaged in autumn at least in plaiting straw from this tiny hamlet the road winds through pleasant undulating country thickly studded with cottages farmhouses and villages and one is tempted to linger by the wayside and watch the peasants who are always busy in their plots of ground hoeing the soil pruning the trees cutting their little patches of hay or wheat ploughing their tiny vineyards or watering them by hand with water which we can watch being drawn in bucketfuls from a moss grown well by a docile mild-eyed ox the certosa which stands like a massive fortress on top of the hill montaguto is reached by a steep narrow lane bordered by low walls on which drowsy green lizards lie basking in the sun the gate is opened by an ancient rosy-cheeked porter monk clad all in white with smooth shaved head and a beard which matches his habit another brother a facsimile of the first shows us over the monastery which is a veritable habitation of peace with its clusters of cells built round a square cloister now used as a garden orchard and burial ground in early summer this garden is a dream of fragrance and beauty being full of sweet-smelling herbs and flowers for the ancient brethren of the certosa support themselves by the sale of home-made liqueur perfumes tonics and febrifuges so the flower-beds which are laid out round the quaint canopied well in the centre of the cloister are fragrant with lavender roses carnations verbenas jasmines oranges lemons thyme sage and all manner of aromatic herbs the certosa was built in the fourteenth century with a view to educating students for the priesthood to form a college in fact but this design was never carried out and now it is the house of a handful of aged weather-beaten cheerful gardener monks who live under a strict rule of silence and only eat together on sundays and holy days their numbers are gradually diminishing however as one after another is laid to rest among the flowers and the bees in the garden cloister. No fresh inmates are admitted, so when the last brother is carried out, and the last grave filled up, the ancient order of things will have passed away, and the old monastery will be turned to other uses. End of chapter 8 End of Things Seen in Florence by Elizabeth Grierson Read by Phil Benson in Sydney, Australia.